When's his home? Of October. I think, yeah. Fuck, she's really taken it off, hasn't she? Yeah, check, check. Yeah, here we go. We're good. Yeah, she um she didn't mind having a bit of a holiday. Nah. And then when she comes back for like two weeks and then goes to India for a month. Yeah. Yeah. So today we are joined on the podcast with uh, Josh Blair. Have you done a podcast before, Josh? No, this is actually my first oh, podcast. Popping the cherry for the podcast. <laughs> That's so cool. Um, So, Josh Blau, yoga extraordinaire. Can you give the people a little bit of an idea of what you what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for having me. It's very exciting. Thanks for coming, mate. Um, I guess it's you know it's it's funny because these days, you know, being a yoga teacher means so many different things. Uh, and then there's some people who would have a uh, a conversation around what's the difference between a yoga teacher and a yoga instructor. Um, and so I guess these days when I get asked what I do, my flat response is I teach meditation and yoga. Yeah. Because uh, to me, meditation is the cornerstone of the whole practice. Um, and then along with that comes, you know, some, some poses to help maintain the body physically yep. and mentally. Uh, and then I guess a, a general health and wellness understanding. Well, I want to go back to your past now. And find out how we got straight into it, yeah, mate. straight up. How we? How did we get here? What? 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 What was your life supposed to be? Put let's put it that way. Mm. When you're growing up, what was your life like, and where was the path that you were supposed to take, and how did it get to being here? Great question. Um, basically, I I was not meant to be, but I always wanted to be an actor. That was kind of my childhood dream. Um, and I was pretty gung-ho with that from about the age of 17 to probably 20, around 27. 27 was the year that things really shifted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, I, you know, for an Aussie, not typical looking Aussie male actor, I was doing okay. Uh, you'd probably put it on like the C class of actors. You know, I've got little bits of TV work here and there and uh, did quite a bit of theatre, ended up directing a short film, producing a, a play. Um, so I was doing all right, you know, but I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't doing well by any by any means. Yeah. And basically uh, I had, when I was younger, I had a lot, a lot of sort of anger management issues and, you know, looking back, I would call it depression. At the time, it wasn't like a clinical depression sort of thing. But, you know, I'd always been kind of labeled ADHD at school and, uh, you know, inability to study, inability to focus and all that sort of jazz. And when I first I first went to India when I was 19 um, and it was a total just party, drug-fueled, Abomination. So it wasn't a spiritual practice then? Well, you know, <laughs> some would say that it was a spiritual practice, yep. just misguided yep. uh, direction. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I love, t- Tom always says that, that drug users are, uh, are still on the path of spirituality because they're looking for something deeper, Yeah. right? So I think that's probably what it was. Mm-hmm. It was just, I was looking to the Israeli drug gurus <laughs> instead of... <laughs> Instead of the Vedic rishis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, I, a little bit of a funny story, but I, I was actually the second, tr- second time back to India. I'd failed uni twice. And um, uh, 
I kind of had this whole system going where uni thought I was um, at home sick. My parents thought I was at uni and I was actually just at my mate's place, just not doing good things. Yeah. And at the end of that year, I was like, oh, I'm going to go to India again and, and this time really find myself. And, and, um, and I went to India and I had about a month before I was meeting up with all my friends and I was on the train and I, you've been to India. In some parts of India, Westerners can be really taken for a ride. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit of a thing. And I'd been scammed by a couple of people and I was very much like, I don't want to talk to any Indians. Go away. Don't talk to me. And it's funny now because I have a number of, you know, good Indian friends. So this story always, it always brings back funny memories. Anyway, um, this guy comes up to me on the train and he's like, oh, hello, how are you? And I was like, mate, like, don't talk to me. I'm fine. Whatever you're selling, I don't want to buy it. He's like, oh, no, but uh, would you like to come and do some yoga? And I was like, no, like, no, thank you. I don't want to do any yoga. I'm not interested. He's like, okay, no problem. And anyway, two towns later, I was in Udaipur in Rajasthan. I randomly bumped into this guy on the street. And he, you know, Indians are so friendly. He comes up, he's like, oh, my friend, my friend, come (laughs) and we'll do yoga together. And I was like, no, I was like, uh, I was so resistant towards it. But then something was just like, okay, this is, I bumped into this guy again. There's got to be something going on here. So I went with him and, and he, we went up onto this rooftop and he literally just taught me like eight really simple poses, which are kind of more of the traditional poses, headstand, shoulder stand, cobra, down dog, a couple of those ones. And he took photos on my camera so I could always look at them. And basically he's just like, do this every day. In the morning. <laughs> and I was like, okay, no worries. Yeah. And, um, and I started doing it every day. And after like two weeks or three weeks, I didn't know what it was at the time. In hindsight, I understand. Yeah. But I just started feeling better. And I started feeling less anxious. And I started feeling less aggressive. And I started feeling less stressed. And it wasn't that I, I kind of went crazy and stopped doing all the things I was doing. I just started incorporating this into, into my day. And I kind of came back from India that trip. I was there for about three months. I came back from India that trip and all these things dawned on me. I was like, I got to finish uni, which I ended up finishing. Um, And I got to start changing my attitude because all of this depression and aggression mentality, it it just ain't serving me anymore. And I I really don't think I would have realized any of that had I not had this yoga practice, even though I didn't realize it was because of the yoga practice at the time. Yeah, yeah. And so it was a really small shift of, of telling myself, well, I'm just going to start being positive. I'm just going to have this positive mentality. And it took about two years for that to really solidify. Anyway, fast track two or so years, yoga was becoming more and more popular. Bikram was really popular at the time and popular at the time. And, you know, as most good stories go, I met this girl Mm -hmm. and she was doing Bikram and she was like, hey, do you want to come and do yoga? And I was like, yeah, I'm a yoga pro. I'm I'm like, I can do anything. Yeah, let's go. And so I went to this Bikram class with her and it destroyed me. You know, 40 degrees, very advanced poses. And I was, I was dying. But again, something just, it hooked me and I just kept going and going and going and going back. And, and then that went on for a couple of years and then fast track. Another few years, I went to LA as an actor with my girlfriend at the time and she was doing her yoga teacher. She went to look to do her yoga teacher 
teacher training right around the corner from my acting school. And little did we know it was one of the sort of most popular studios in LA at the time. And this was right before the whole Instagram famous yogi sort of thing where there was still a lot of, there was a lot of clout around teachers uh, based on just the fact that they were teachers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And not that there's anything wrong with, with the whole Instagram yoga situation, uh, it's just that this was before then. So there was a lot of popularity around these teachers purely because they were incredible teachers. Mm. And so I ended up getting free yoga to work at the desk and I just started doing it twice a day. I was, I had a lot of spare time in, in my acting, uh, in, in the acting course. A lot of downtime. A lot of downtime. Yeah. And I just had, we had nothing else to do. Um, she was doing her teacher training and I was, I just kept doing class after class after class. And, you know, this had been now maybe five Five or five or so years of really continuous yoga practice, and I started to notice my knee pain went away. I had patella tracking in my knees, which you know the, the one of the best surgeons in Melbourne told me that the only way I would get rid of it is through surgery. And it turned out that my hips were really tight, and my hips were pulling on uh, on my ITB, and that was pulling on my knee, which was causing the patella tracking and. Um, and so my knee pain went away and, and then I started losing weight and naturally feeling strong and um, I decided to experiment with not eating meat. Uh, and all these little things just started to change, mm-hmm. which I, again, at the time, I kind of, I knew it was the yoga, but I didn't fully understand the scope of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then basically I came home and yoga was, was the anchor in my life. So I continued acting and I was you know, I was doing considerably well, like I somewhat well. Um, and yeah, I remember the turning point is about 27 and I remember going into it, it all kind of happened at once. I remember going to this bar and seeing one of my friends, 35 year old male actor who just looked really tired mm. and we, we chatted and, and he was, he was telling me he was trying to support two kids and working at a bar trying to make it as an actor. And I think maybe because I was getting older, it just, it scared me. And I was like, wow, I don't want to be that. Yeah. I don't want to be, you know, when I was 19 and when I was 21, I was willing to put everything on the line and, and I was definitely more um, carefree about committing my life to being an actor. But I think the older I got, the less I, uh, the less I wanted that challenge of lifestyle. Mm. And as that was happening, my, my, Funnily enough, my ex, who's now my business partner, <laughs> um, which this was the very beginnings of our professional relationship, um, needed a teaching partner. And we'd, we'd been broken up for a while and she was like, hey, I need someone to come and teach with me. Do you want to teach with me? And I wasn't a teacher yet. Um, and I started to notice that when I went to classes around Melbourne, teachers and other students would be like, oh, hey, how'd you do that pose? Because I'd, I'd been doing it now for so long and I'd had all this experience in America, coming back to Australia, um, you know, things like handstands and uh, I guess what seemingly would look like advanced poses were quite easy for me. Mm. Um, and no one was really doing that sort of thing here. Uh, and I started to notice that I felt really fulfilled helping people, Mm -hmm. even if it wasn't at that time getting into a, a, a physical pose, you know, or balancing on the head or whatever on the hands. Yeah. And, yeah, it was about a six month process where I was, you know, I was, cause I'm a musician as well. So I was playing gigs. I was making money from gigs. I was teaching, I was flying around Australia teaching and, and making money 
from that. And I just, it's like I'd forgotten about acting. I'd forgotten that I was an actor. I'd spent about three months in this kind of new lifestyle and fit and trim and healthy and happy and all these things. And it was like all this stuff was happening inside that I didn't realize that I kind of said to myself, I was like, wow, is this, is this what I want to do now? Is this my new career? And I remember it so clearly. I went to this audition and it was the start of the year when I turned 27 and I was starting to audition for more what they call them leading man roles. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's very important for the leading man to have a a very chiseled body Mm. most of the time. And so in a lot of those auditions, particularly ones for the U S the, the initial prerequisite is to take your shirt off. Mm. And I, you know, I've never been like a very typically fit, strong, or let's call it cut guy. Mm -hmm. So that was always quite intimidating for me. And I went into this audition and the lady was like, okay, um, what's your name? Josh Blau, where are you from? Da, 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 da. What's your agency? Da, da, da. Okay. Can you take your shirt off now? Shirt off. Now turn around, please. Okay. Now do the scene. Yeah. And it really just, I mean, I always knew that it was, it, you know, it was very rarely about the acting in the acting industry. Yeah. Um, but it dawned on me. I kind of said to myself, I'm like, I'm never doing that again. And I'm never auditioning for anything ever again. I'm yeah. done. And I went and got a job for Lululemon. It was either Lululemon or Apple. I'd kind of gotten in with both companies and I got a job with Lululemon. And I started working for Lululemon and kind of said, I want to go and do my teacher training. And then I went to do my teacher training at the same place that my ex had done hers and, and I was there at, at that time. And yeah, basically went and did that six months later, came home back to Australia and, and started teaching full time. Oh, can I ask what, uh, what it was like taking both of those, those career paths? Um, how did the family feel about it? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, <laughs> well, let me tell you as <laughs> Jewish parents, yeah. um, you know, the, the game plan was always have a child and and hopefully they'll be a doctor or a lawyer yeah. or a banker. So I can only and, imagine they're surprised when you said, I'm going to be an actor. Well, yeah, I think, you know, they knew that I was not going to be that yeah. guy because from a very early age, I never did well in maths. I never did well in English. I, I really didn't just didn't do well at school. Sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a lot of people, right? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Are, that are now awesome and creative and successful and, and really wonderful people. But um, yeah, there was just this, only until music and, and theatre came along at school that I was somewhat engaged. Yeah. But, you know, my parents had tried to get me tutors and it was, it was like they really wanted me to go in that direction. And, and when I told them I was going to do events management, that's what I studied at uni. They were really happy because they were like, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a degree or a certificate that, you know, we'll be able to guarantee income because that's what it is at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And I get it. You know, I get where it comes from. And it comes from a good place. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was funny because I was like, yeah, I'm, I want to be an actor. And it took them about five years to just begin to accept that I was going to be a full-time working actor. Yeah. Uh, and then by the time they just learned to accept that, <laughs> I was like, well, actually, I'm going to become a yoga teacher. What? And, um, and I think for them... You know, it was, it was a little bit of a, you know, my mum would still go to me 
you know, a year or two after I'd been successfully teaching in Melbourne. And when I say successfully, I mean like I'd gotten work and I was making a sustainable living. My mum would still be like, you know, Joshua, it's not too late to consider uh, learning a trade, like being an electrician or, <laughs> or carpentry. And, and I was like, thanks, mum. You know, I just don't feel like that's my, my calling. That's yeah. my purpose. And, and, you know, for, for Eastern, Eastern European middle-aged woman, it's hard to understand what calling is or what purpose is, you know, given what they've been through in their generation. Mm -hmm. My dad kind of cottoned on because he, you know, he knows that the health and wellness industry now is, is a thing. So he's like, okay, good. Well, you know, do something with it and, you know, do what you can. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was always, you know, always a funny thing, the relationship with parents. So you don't get them out on the mat? I actually do. Um, do. So my dad comes to me once a week and we do, I do like a very particular kind of yoga therapy yeah. thing with him and I give him breathing techniques without him realizing. Yeah. Um, and he sort of, you know, I, when I, when I started teaching, I was, I was getting some sort of high, high, high kind of profile jobs mm-hmm. and it got around to him that I was a really good teacher because mm-hmm. I never pushed it on them. Yeah. Never did. And, um, it got around from word of mouth back to him that I was a really good teacher. And he kind of came to me one day. He's like, so Joshua, you know, I hear that you're uh, <laughs> quite a good yoga teacher. And I was like, I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. I just do what I can. And, and he's like, so, you know, what do we, what do we need to do to have some sessions? And I was like, I'll sort you out. Don't worry. So yeah. it's been about a year and a half since him and I have been doing it and, and he loves it, but he was very particular. He was like, I don't want any of the spiritual woo woo. I just want to feel good. And I was like, no worries. We can do that. Um, my mom does, she goes around town to other studios, which is good. I think that's better for her. Yeah. 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 That's pretty cool. That's very cool. What else are we going to talk about, Josh? (laughs) Mate, whatever you want. Do Do you want to talk about, about Bhakti? Yeah, sure. What would you like to know? What is it? (laughs) (laughs) How would you explain what bhakti is and and how you've you've felt in relation to it and how it's impacted you or your experience with bhakti? I guess for me, the biggest thing, and I said this before, is, you know, is meditation, right? And meditation has so many different, especially these days, so many different stereotypes and so many different branches of the same tree. Mm. Um, and really, I mean, if we were, you know, if we were talking from a traditional standpoint, bhakti, it translates to devotion. It's the, the practice of devotion. And, mm. and really there's a number of layers within that. So the kind of first layer is in India, you'll often see uh, the Hindus praying or chanting or performing ceremony to, you know, Ganesh, the elephant God or Shiva or Krishna. Uh, And there's a real strong level of devotion uh, seemingly to this uh, expression of the divine expression of God or whatever you want to call it. Mm. Um, But ultimately, and if you talk to any master or you sit at the feet of any master, what they'll express and what they'll tell you is that it's, actually a representation of a state of consciousness within ourselves. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is we're recognizing that which is outside of ourselves, but acknowledging that it's actually within ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we're practicing this level of devotion of bhakti to something seemingly external, but it's actually to something internal. Um, And the practice, that ritualistic practice to something external, it creates what's called um, 
Sanskrit word tapas, which which kind of translates to fire. Um, but really what it means is this level of commitment and practice to something that you wouldn't normally do, you know, like a prayer or a ritual or a yoga practice or a meditation or something that doesn't give you an instant gratification. It doesn't make you feel good straight away. It's something that can often feel like you kind of don't want to do it or you can't be bothered doing it, but it's through that um, practice that you reap these incredible benefits. Mm -hmm. So within that practice, there's all these different types of um, styles of devotion. So, you know, there's chanting, there's uh, different types of physical practices, there's meditation. um, And I guess for me, you know, I don't know how how sort of deep you've gone with with your with your podcast, but let's just rip into it. Yeah. But I guess in the yoga tradition, and this is what I've always learned as a concept in my head, is that everything is one thing, mm-hmm. and the universe is interacting with itself and expressing itself through interaction. And now, you know, sitting in a in a yoga class to hear a concept like that is pretty mind stretching yeah, uh, and even to sit and talk about it is quite mind bending. And really the only way you can understand it or feel it is, is through experience yeah, through experiencing something higher than, than what you think you are, what you think, you know, which you know all about. Yeah. Going beyond your concept of yourself and experiencing yourself as something bigger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, transcending. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'd always understood these concepts in my head because I'd heard them so much. And, you know, it's that's that kind of association. You hear something over and over and over again. Eventually, you just you understand it. Mm-hmm. Maybe in your heart, maybe not. Maybe in your head, maybe not. Mm-hmm. For me, it was something that I'd always gotten in my head but never really felt in my heart. Mm-hmm. And for me, my work was always compassion. Mm-hmm. So I always lacked compassion for people. I was super judgmental and arrogant. And That's the side effect of being an actor, right? <laughs> it is. I guess it is. Yeah, because you're always in competition with other people trying to get that role or trying, totally. to, trying to prove that you're worthy. And then obviously from people watching or you know to the audience, you're trying to attract that, that attention as well. So yeah. it's sort of a byproduct, I guess. Totally. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'd always learned that, someone who was exhibiting traits of enlightenment was super compassionate. Mm. And so I'd gotten it in my head, but I'd never really understood it in my body. And it wasn't until I first went to India and spent time with uh, a a guy named Ido, who I I think you know, Mm. is a a beautiful kirtan. Well, he's just a beautiful musician. And one of his main things is kirtan, which is it's a form of bhakti form of devotion where you where you sing and chant uh different names of of the divine let's mm-hmm. call it yeah and you know krishna and shiva and ram and all these guys which is something that it's funny because i absolutely love this i love kirtan but when i first found out about what it was or got near what it was it scared the shit out of me mm. it was something that caused me a lot of anxiety and like a lot of i had a lot of ideas in my head about what it was mm. and a lot of thoughts that I know if I, if I sing this song, I'm going to become religious mm. stuff like that, you know, and it, it's, um, yeah, totally. And I think it's, it's a huge, it's a huge kind of when the student is ready, the teacher appears kind of situation because mm-hmm. 
a year, you know, two years before I'd met Ido, I'd been exposed to Kirtan as well. And I had really similar feelings. Yeah. It was more, I felt it was very cultish and I didn't yeah. feel like it was a very welcoming and inclusive thing. Whether that was me experiencing it or that was a reflection of what was going on, who's to say, yeah. who knows, probably yeah. just me feeling that way. Yeah. Um, but then two years later, I'd met Ido and was exposed to this whole different carefree, lighthearted approach to the kirtan, to the bhakti. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't up until I went to India with Ido. And so Ido had had, um, had a, a, a singing partner, Joe Mal, who's just beautiful, beautiful human. And um, she was diagnosed with really aggressive cancer and within six months passed away at like the age of 34 or 35, something mm-hmm. like that. And the way, you know, I've lost a couple of people close to me and the way that we in the West deal with grief is very specific. It's very particular. It's a lot of sadness, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, a lot of fear, a lot, a lot of selfishness at Mm -hmm. the cause of it Mm -hmm. really. And, you know, Ido had lost Joe maybe six months to eight months prior to me hanging out with him this time in India and I was in India with him and it was Joe's birthday. Mm-hmm. And, you know, any normal person that you'd see on, on, on an anniversary of loved one's death, particularly that early, would just be beside themselves. And I'm generalizing here, but yeah. most people beside themselves, depressed, sorrow, anguish, you know, heartache. Mm-hmm. And Ido was just beaming. He was just, he was just, in, he was enlightened. It was whether it was for a moment or you know he's enlightened all the time I don't know but it was just this sense of this shininess was coming out of him and he was talking about Joe like she was in the room with us yeah. and he was he was expressing that he was so happy for her that she'd gone to this new place and that she was still helping him write music and finding inspiration and and through his devotional practice of kirtan and ceremony um, he was still connecting to her. And it just, it knocked me for six. I was, you know, sitting there spending the night with him with my jaw on the floor most of the time going, now this is, this is what devotion is to me. This is what devotion is all about. It's this unconditional faith and unconditional love that there is this higher purpose. There is this higher thing that's going on that is greater than we can understand with the limit of our five senses, Mm -hmm. greater than we can comprehend and the information we can take in. And, you know, in the, in the yoga, yoga terminology, there's a term uh, that's called shraddha, shraddha. And it basically stipulates that it's the practice of complete unconditional faith in what lies ahead of the practice. Mm-hmm. It's complete unconditional faith in the unknown. Yeah. So we know that it's unknown, yet it's a complete uh, surrender and and commitment to this. And through that, we have all of our practices. And so that for me is when the penny first really dropped around, wow, there's no difference between me and him. There's no difference between, you know, me and that person that I see on the street that I've never met before. And and it was this feeling of, for the first time in my life of, of real heart connection, I started to feel connected to him and to everybody around me in the heart. Yeah. And, um, and I think, and it's been said for thousands of years that the bhakti practice, the devotional practice is, is the quickest way mm. to get to that place because it, it penetrates 
through the intellect. It penetrates through the ego. It penetrates all the ideas mm-hmm. that we think we have around the way things are meant to be. It just brings it all back to love. All back to love. Yeah. You know, which definitely is something that the yoga, the modern yoga practice uh, lacks to a degree mm. because there's so much importance placed on physicality mm-hmm. that you can get, you know, and a friend of mine always says, we've gotten really good at the poses. We've gotten really bad at the brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so you can get really good at all these poses, but are you really evolving inside? Is mm-hmm. the heart opening? Is it expanding? And sure, there are teachers doing it and there are people experiencing it. Um but it definitely has gotten lost on the wayside because the, you know the, a lot of the traditional texts will will, will all come back to the heart, will yeah. all come back to unconditional love and mm. and and faith and care. Um, so, um, being a musician, then having that experience with Edo in India, um, how did you then get into doing kirtan? My first ever kirtan experience was. This guy in a turban and a white robe sitting on this altar, you know, with everyone with their eyes closed, chanting Hare Krishna. Yeah. And, you know, Jewish guy from Caulfield yeah. <laughs> was like, whoa, what the, what the hell have I entered into here? It was, I could not feel less inclined. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then further to that, I, I'm a blues musician and the blues mentality is oh you're a musician jump on stage and let's have a jam kind of thing Mm. you know to a degree and in the break i'd went up to this guy in the turban and i was like hey mate i've got my guitar do you mind if i and he's like no (laughs) (laughs) no no and i was like oh he's like no and and let me tell you the the kirtan the musical perspective is very simple. It's they're all very simple chords and yeah. And I, and a total reflection of of me at the time. I was I was quite a, not offended, but I was like, oh well, you know, screw this guy. If he doesn't want me to play, then I'm just gonna you know cross my hands and yeah, and dig my heels in. Turn your bottom lip up. Yeah, and so <laughs> uh, that was my first ever kirtan experience. So every time people, you know, I would take my guitar to yoga classes. I would play in shavasana. I would sing in shavasana. And I do, do do these different yoga events. People be like, oh, you'd be so great at Kirtan. You should do Kirtan. I was like, nah, I don't like it. I don't want to do it. Very close-minded towards it. Yeah. And anyway, I was at this, uh, this a close friend's house and, and this friend had invited it on Joe. This was when Joe was still still with us um, from Sydney because they, they were based in Sydney down to Melbourne to, to do a Kirtan. Uh, I went along you know, with fresh eyes and Mm. they just brought this, you know, they were giving everybody instruments. They were encouraging everyone to play. They were encouraging everyone to sing. And there was just this, you just felt the love, Mm. you know, whereas this other person, it felt, and look, maybe it was just my interpretation, but it felt was very much about him, Mm -hmm. him doing the kirtan. And, and I was like, wow, this is actually really cool. Um, I had a really, really fun time. I didn't get into the actual chanting yet, but I was like, this is a really fun experience. I'm having a really good time. Everybody's really happy. There's something here. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that, uh, Pete Cooper, a good friend of mine got up and it was his house and he was like, all right, well, we're going to do this again next week. So, you know, who wants to lead the Kirtans? And everyone pointed to me and and this, another friend of ours, Yolanda, because we're musicians. Yeah. And I'd never done any kirtan before, and I was like, "No way!" And, and they were like, "Nah, you'll be fine. You'll be fine." And I was like, "Okay, this is this is going to be a bit of a an interesting experiment." Yeah. 
And so I started listening to some of, you know, the modern Kirtan players, specifically Krishna Das. And oh, Krishna Das. We love him. Yeah. And, um, and basically I started to notice that he had a lot of blues and a lot of pop rock and roll in his, in his style. And it really resonated with me. And I started doing these Kirtans every, every couple of weeks. And it was just a wonderful experience. I was fortunate enough in later months to meet Krishna Das in the States and he was super welcoming. And funnily enough, he was actually a blues musician messed up on, on drugs and depression before he got into the Kirtan scene as well back in the seventies. Yeah. Um, and I felt like a real connection to him, you know, yep, because yep. of that. And, um, and he, you know, he always said that this, you know, it's not chanting to some God out there, mm. Krishna or, or Vishnu. That's the, the modern colonization of Hinduism. Yeah. But in, in the ancient Vedic practices, uh, which was not a religion, it was a, it was a set of guidelines for anyone on how to live in the world. And mm. Kabbalah has the same thing. Yeah. Um, ancient Eastern um, Chinese traditions have the same thing stemming back from Buddhism. It was not a religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least from what I understand and what I've been told. Yeah. And it was this sense of you're you're praying to yourself. Mm. You're praying to find strength in yourself. Mm. You know, Ganesh, for example, is the, the remover of obstacles or the protector. You're invoking that force within yourself that removes obstacles. Mm. You're invoking that power within yourself that protects. Or um, Shiva, the destroyer, who come and destroy anything that's stagnant in your, in your life. You're invoking that element in yourself mm. to move through whatever it is that's stagnant in your life. Yeah. And that really resonated to me, uh, particularly because, you know, Bible school at a, at a young age, you know, any, any false gods, you know, no, no, the, yeah, yeah. the Ten Commandments and all that sort of stuff, thou shall not, uh, you know, worship false gods and all this stuff. So that was always a little bit of a thing for me. And it was really liberating to hear that perspective because that resonated the most to me. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, it's the only set of guidelines. Let's instead of using the word religion, let's say set of set of living principles mm-hmm. that I've ever come across that have just been all inclusive. Yeah. They don't exclude anything. Whereas you know Judaism and a lot of these other religions, they tend to exclude a lot. And they some some of them are based in fear as well. Like if you yeah. don't do this, something bad's going to happen. Yeah. As opposed to just like here's the way to love. Yeah. <laughs> come towards love. You know. Yeah. As opposed very. To, yeah very controlled, controlling mentality. And, you know, each has their place and each has their own. And, and everything I'm saying here today is, is just my view yeah. and what, what has worked for me. Mm. You know, I would know by no means say that everyone has to do this or what yeah, I'm yeah. doing. You yeah. Know, I just want to disclaim, put that disclaimer on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's something, it's very interesting for me, um, being to go into Kirtans and then getting past my own self-conscious sort of not being able to sit and sing in front of other people because mm. I'm like, what are they thinking of me? Once mm. you get past that that voice in your head telling you that everyone cares, that no one actually does care, mm. and then enjoy the experience, I found that from from the experience into the next day is just like a high, a natural mm. high coming from the the group energy that you just feed off, and mm. yeah, it becomes almost a little bit addictive to totally jump into it and and um, experience that. And it's liberating, yeah. you know, the amount of people I've had come up to me after a kirtan and just say, you know, people say thank you and I try to say, 
you know, you're welcome, but it's the practice. It's not me. Mm. Uh, you know, it's you diving into the practice. I'm just here kind of guiding the show a little bit, mm. but it's really you, you know, you're putting in the work and the amount of people that would come up to me though and say, you know, I've never had the ability to sing in front of anyone else before. Mm. And I found myself just yelling at the top of my lungs. Mm. And for a lot of people, like that's powerful to, mm. to get through that experience because ultimately it represents everything else that's going on in their lives. You know, what else are they afraid of? What else are they not willing to move through just based on their own fears? Mm. So that to me has always felt really empowering and fulfilling to, to just be part of that experience, yeah. which, which now feels, you know, much deeper than teaching someone how to handstand, yeah. which is still awesome and valid. Valid, totally. Yeah. And for a long time was my thing, was what I love to do and still has its place and is a, is a great fear crusher teaching yeah. someone how to do a handstand. Mm. Um, but this really feels, it just feels like another layer has now mm. been uncovered, you know, in, in this whole yoga game. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's weird. Hey, cause like we're talking and like normally we just talk shit. But like, this is like very specifically, we're interviewing now. It's weird. It's so weird because I'm like, I'm interviewing you. And then like, turn the mics off and we'll just talk shit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, that does go quick. I mean, you're Burning. probably five minutes of jargon that you'll cut out of there. Oh, maybe I'll leave it in there. Are you going to have the, um, <laughs> are you going to have the, uh, the cool music like Tom's at the start? Um, I've got a, I've got a thing. I've got another. Oh. That's my thing. Cool, man. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming. Is there anything else you want to talk oh, about? Um, we want to get you to give the good people your information if they want to follow you on the Instagram or they want to find out who your teacher trainings are or your classes are. So Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Do that. So we'll leave some info in the, in the links anyway, but for those of you listening, uh, if you could pull out your phones right now um, <laughs> and jump on Instagram. So it's Josh underscore Blau, B-L-A-U underscore yoga. Um, that's my, my yoga page. And then I'm part of a really awesome group called the Om People, which oh. is Om People Yoga, O-M People Yoga. And uh, they're also on Instagram and we run teacher trainings postgraduate teacher trainings, workshops, and retreats all over town. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, if anyone has any thoughts or feelings on this podcast, I'd love to discuss further. So feel free to get in touch with me or the spiritual tradie. Beautiful. Um, but, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Jago Dev. Jago.